tonight on NTD Business, President Biden rolling out more sanctions against Russia after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Oil prices surging as Russia attacks Ukraine, with Russia being one of top oil exporters. What does that mean for inflation? And the number of Americans receiving unemployment benefits has reached a 52-year low. A finance expert says there's more to this number than meets the eye. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Good evening and, and welcome. I'm Evelyn Lee, sitting in for Paul Graney. Good to have you with us. President Biden imposing new sanctions on Russia today in response to its attack against Ukraine. He called Putin, quote, the aggressor and says Putin and his country will bear the consequences. Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions and new limitations on what can be exported to Russia. This is going to impose severe cost on the Russian economy, both immediately and over time. He says the sanctions would cut Russia off the U.S. financial system, as well as limit its access to U.S. high-tech for critical sectors. But he also says some impacts might take time. But Biden notably stopped short of sanctioning Russia's energy sector. Russia has launched an attack on Ukraine earlier today after months of Russian troop buildup along Ukraine's border. Ukraine's leadership said at least 40 people have been killed so far in what it called a full-scale war with multiple cities and bases targeted. In response, Ukraine's president cut diplomatic ties with Moscow. And the Pentagon is ordering 7,000 additional U.S. troops to Europe. But Biden reiterated the forces are not going to Europe to fight in Ukraine, but to defend NATO allies. On news of the attack, U.S. stock indexes were way down before markets opened this morning. Gold, a traditional safe haven, was way up. But after a dramatic turnaround, stocks ended up in the green and gold ended up in the red. For the three major indexes, the Dow ended up 92 points or three-tenths of a percent. The S&P 500 gained 63 points or one and a half percent. And the Nasdaq jumped 436 points or 3.3 percent. Joining me now to discuss market reactions to today's Russia and Ukraine news is Lance Roberts. He's a chief investment strategist with RIA Advisors. Welcome back, Lance. Hey, glad to be here as always. Thank you. So stocks fell significantly in pre-market trading today, but it looks like things turned around. Can you tell me more about why that is? Well, a couple of things. One, if we look back through history and look at geopolitical events, whether it was the Russia invasion or annexation, I say, of Crimea in 2014, that was actually the bottom of the market that day, and the market actually rallied after that. And the reason is, is that by the time we get to these points, look, the market's been selling off now really ever since January. We were down 12% yesterday on the, on the S&P. The NASDAQ was actually near bear market territory. So just technically, there had already been a lot of selling in advance of this news that came out of Russia. So now what we see is money kind of reevaluating it and saying, okay, what is this going to do to the stock market? How does the Russia invasion of Ukraine affect the earnings for Adobe or for Apple or for Microsoft? And investors are making that, adjust that adjustment now because the event has happened, and so now the market's adjusting for that event, and money's coming back to work in the areas that they think will benefit um, and, will, and will grow coming out of this situation. 
And when you spoke to Paul before, you did mention that stocks are overvalued and could fall mm -hmm. as much as 40%, and that's if something unexpected would happen and spook the market. So could this event actually be it? No, uh, again, like I said, and if we go back and look at history, you know, geopolitical events, they come and go fairly quickly. And now, you know, to your question, though, could this actually cause a much bigger bear market? And yes, the, the answer to that question would be yes, if this thing evolves into a full-scale war. That would obviously not be good uh, for markets or economies anywhere. And, and we certainly hope that's not going to be the case, and we don't think that's going to be the case. So, you know, what would cause a bigger bear market is going to be, and as always is, by the way, monetary policy by the Fed. And while we're talking about the Russia invasion of, of Ukraine today, we can't forget that we still have to deal with 7% plus inflation, which will be even higher in the month of March. We've got the Fed on deck now. They've got to do something about trying to bring down inflation. So how do we bring down inflation? Well, we hike interest rates to slow the economy. That slows earnings for companies. And so if companies are already overvalued, those are going to have to come down in value to adjust for a lower rate of earnings growth. So that's the real risk kind of going forward. And, and again, it's, it's not saying that we're going to have a 40% bear market. I don't want anybody to think I'm saying that's absolutely going to happen. But that's the risk. And, you know, we've got to be aware that the Fed is beginning to reverse the one thing, which is monetary policy, which has been supporting asset prices over the last few years. And how are you responding to this? Any reshuffling of portfolios? Yes. Um, well, what we've been doing is, of course, going into this, we've been buying bonds, um, longer dated treasury bonds, because in a moment of risk off, and we saw that this morning, that money flows into safe havens. So it went into the US dollar. We saw the dollar rally strongly today. We saw a bonds rally today as well. Um, that's beginning to reverse here a bit because now money's moving back towards equities. But you know, the, you know, having a little bit of extra cash here and, and using this rally, uh, again, we're not out of the woods here by any stretch of the imagination. Um, we are due for a fairly strong reflexive rally. So I would certainly recommend that individuals look at their portfolio and say, look, I really didn't like that decline that I had in January and February. That means you have too much risk in your portfolio. So use this rally to reduce some of the risk and look at better, you know, look at moving money into better quality companies that have strong earnings growth, good established companies, move out of more speculative uh, stocks for the time being until we get past this event and, and really and understand what the Fed's going to be doing. Lance, thanks for your insights as always. Lance Roberts, Ma RIA Advisors. Thank you, my pleasure. Russia is a global oil superpower. It's one of the five biggest exporters. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused oil prices to surge, which may lead to everything becoming more expensive. And today's fake quarter has more. Energy prices spike as Russia invades Ukraine. The U.S. and its partners are developing a plan to put more oil into the market. This is critical to me. Many of the European nations are dependent upon Putin for oil and gas. And so they realize he is in a position of strength over them. Daniel Turner is the founder of Power the Future. Turner says Russia is one of the top oil exporters in the world, which gives Russia a lot of wealth and power. There's a certain production level. When that production level drops, prices start to go up if demand does not drop with it. If Russia is not producing 
the production levels worldwide are going to continue to drop, and that is going to make prices escalate dramatically. Turner says almost everything needs oil to function, so rising prices will lead to even more inflation. And while sanctions will hurt Russia... They're very aggressive as well on the countries that impose them. Sanctions mean higher energy prices, mean lower trade, mean more challenges to supply chains. So that obviously means more inflation for everybody. Daniel Lacaye is the chief economist of the Tresses Hedge Fund. Lacaye believes the United States and the European Union will impose massive sanctions anyway, sanctions that Putin has prepared for. One of the things that uh, Mr. Putin has been doing for a while uh, is to strengthen the ties with China in, in finances to reduce exposure to financial sectors in the, in the West. Also, it's an economy that rapidly adapts to sanctions because uh, unlike other economies, it doesn't require massive levels of reserves to preserve the uh, independence of the central bank. Both Lacaille and Turner believe other countries should raise their oil supplies to decrease oil prices, as well as Putin's power. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Now, pressure is building for tougher sanctions on Russia. Some are calling for Russia to be frozen out of the international payment system called SWIFT. SWIFT is a secure messaging system banks use to settle cross-border payments quickly and easily. And it's become a key mechanism for financing international trade. If Russian banks were really to be locked out of SWIFT, it would restrict the country's access to global financial markets. Russian companies would have a harder time getting paid for goods they export to other countries. They'd also find it more difficult to invest overseas or borrow from foreign lenders. But it would also make it harder for foreign buyers of Russian oil and gas. Today, responding to reporters' questions, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said that cutting off Russia from SWIFT should not be part of the EU's new sanctions package. EU leaders are discussing it at a meeting today. Sources tell Reuters banning Russia from SWIFT is unlikely at the stage. Bitcoin and the entire crypto market is also having a big reaction to the crisis over in Ukraine. And Didis Phil Zoe has the details. The entire crypto market fell around 9% Thursday, down to around $1.5 trillion shortly after Russia and Ukraine engaged in warfare. The volatility right now, absolutely through the roof. Definitely not trading for the, uh, for the faint of heart. It's something that happens everywhere in every market. People panic, they sell. Time of crisis, investors are getting out of volatile weird investments as fast as they can and getting into just U.S. dollars. At one point, Bitcoin fell 8% to as low as the mid-$34,000 range. So obviously, if you still love crypto and you understand crypto, then it's a good buying opportunity, but uh, it's understandable that the market first of all drops. Sometimes the good thing or the bad thing about crypto is that market trade 24-7. Uh, uh, now, the interesting thing is that we saw Bitcoin recoup its losses. At the time of this story, Bitcoin has already bounced back to over $38,000. All the Bitcoin narratives that it's anti-correlated, that it's a hedge against 
uh, other investments, those are all false. It's really closely correlated. So we expect uh, Nasdaq and tech stock to usually be a bellwether to uh, to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Dan Kaufman at educational firm Trade says U.S. sanctions against Russia might actually help cryptocurrency. A lot of traders are going to work through those sanctions and recognize that, again, Russia is going to turn to the cryptocurrency market, again, to circumnavigate some of those sanctions. Phil Zhou, NTD News. The number of Americans receiving unemployment benefits has fallen steadily since May of last year. We've now hit a 52-year low. A finance expert says the number is good, but like many things in life, it comes with some caveats. NTD's Miguel Moreno has a story. The number of people on unemployment benefits is shrinking. Right now, 1,476,000 Americans are collecting the benefits. We haven't seen a number this low in 52 years. It does come with a couple of caveats, though. Michael Bussler is a professor of finance at Stockton University. He says the loan number is good, that it bodes well for the economy. But that number might be the product of generous pandemic benefits and their frugal beneficiaries. Most of the unemployed people today fall into two different categories, under 25 and over 55. Some of them are a little reluctant to go back to work for a number of reasons. The over 55 are still a little bit nervous about the virus being in a very susceptible position. Um, and the under 25s, now the ones I talk to, um, and I try to go out and find out why these people aren't working when there's so many jobs available to them, um, and they're not collecting unemployment uh, benefits anymore either because that ran out. So I said, well, how come you're not going back to work? How are you supporting yourself? And most of them told me that they made so much money being unemployed and they were able to save so much of it, they're living off of those unemployment benefits that they got uh, within the last year. On top of that, Bustler said folks he spoke with saved additional money by living rent-free for about two years, courtesy of eviction moratoriums. If people aren't looking for jobs and living on saved-up benefits, they can't claim unemployment aid. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that December ended with nearly 11 million job openings. Because the demand for labor is so high, Bustler says companies will have to replace labor with capital. This means machines will be used to fill those unwanted positions. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Sales of new U.S. single-family homes fell in January to just over 800,000. That's down 19% from January 2021. That month had the highest level since 2006, and that's when sales were just short of $1 million. The drop could be because of rising mortgage rates and higher prices. That's eliminating some first-time buyers from the market. And on top, builders are also dealing with shortages of key materials and higher prices. That's for items like windows, wood products, garage doors, cabinets, countertops and appliances. With a record low inventory of previously owned homes and a backlog of homes approved for construction but yet to be started at an all-time high. The demand for housing, though, is expected to remain strong. Joining me now is Eric Thorson. He's with Atlas Real Estate and they have offices in Phoenix and Denver. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Bloomberg says that real estate prices are shooting up in Phoenix and they say it's because institutional investors keep pouring money into the market. So what are, what are you seeing on the ground? 
Sure, it's a great point. Um, Phoenix has always been a very investor-heavy market, but that's not right what we're seeing on the ground. Um, we're seeing activity from all sorts of buyers. You have your retail home buyers, you have your small investors, and you have your larger investors. Um, so it's really a mix between that, and we're still seeing a very competitive environment where you have sometimes between 15 and 20 offers per home, uh, many of which are from uh, individual home buyers. And can you go into a bit more detail who exactly is buying up all the properties, you know, maybe go into uh, the proportions a little bit more? Sure. So in, in Phoenix, uh, you have about 80% of the rental homes that are purchased by investors who own one or two properties. So that's really your small, uh, small investor who might be saving for their retirement, purchasing a home. Uh, only about 7% of the homes are owned by groups that have 100 or more properties. So it's still a relatively small percentage uh, of the overall market. So we have seen an increase uh, since COVID. Um, as that's been the case really nationwide. Um, but really, the amount of first-time home buyers is at its greatest percentage since 2009-2010. So we're still seeing a lot of first-time buyers entering the market, uh, and they're not really getting crowded out by your large institutional investors. And I heard that prices are creeping up, though, because of a larger amount of institutional investors. Why are they interested in Phoenix in comparison to other places? Uh, sure. And I would say that prices are creeping up not because of institutional investors. They're creeping up because of a lack of inventory. Uh, there was less than required supply of new housing, uh, really nationwide, but in Phoenix for years following the Great Recession. Not enough homes were built, and uh, now there's only less than one month of supply of new homes on the market. So really a lack of supply combined with strong demand from population growth and a really booming economy. Uh, employment growth is over 6% in the Phoenix market. Uh, we have people moving there from all over the country uh, as it remained open during COVID. So that's really the market fundamentals of why prices are increasing rather than uh, demand from one investor group. So um, the reason why investors love Phoenix is the same reason why people want to live there. Uh, it's, it has a strong economy. It's a diversified economy. It's open for business. And it's really been a great place for the last few years. And investors and homeowners alike want to be in the market. Thanks, Eric, Thor uh, Eric Thorson, Atlas Real Estate. Pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Appreciate the largest ever U.S. sale of wind development rights continues today. It already attracted a record $1.5 billion in bids yesterday, supporting President Biden's plan to create a new domestic industry. Jillian Kitchener reports. A massive area miles off the coast of New York and New Jersey is the site of the biggest ever auction of its kind. Up for grabs? The right to harness the power of the wind. The sale of offshore wind development rights is the first under the Biden administration. Ed Potasnik is executive director of the New Jersey League of Conservation Voters. He sees enormous potential in an area covering nearly half a million acres of water. The governor has a goal of 7,500 megawatts from offshore wind, and that's enough wind to power millions of homes. Um, that's a big deal in a state with about 9 million people. But not everyone is on board with the plan. Greg Kudnick is owner of a fishing charter boat business in New Jersey and worries about what thousands of wind turbines will do to the ocean habitat. I mean, we're going to have turbines from Maine to North Carolina. 
what is it going to solve? Um, and that's really what I would like to hear as, as a really quick, easy answer or as a long-winded report. But for all this that's taking place and all this is put in jeopardy, to me, I don't see the net benefit. Residents in coastal communities are also concerned. In January, a group of New Jersey residents sued the agency holding the auction, worried about the aesthetic impacts of the turbines visible from the beach and potential lost tourism. For now, though, the auction presses ahead, marking a major step forward for bringing more offshore wind power to the United States. Here's a question for you. Where do you think it's more expensive to raise a child? Is it the United States or China? In the U.S., the average cost of raising a kid to the age of 18 is about four times its per capita GDP. That means four years of your income. But in China, it's even more. There, the cost is about seven times its per capita GDP. Here's Entities Don Ma with a breakdown of those numbers. It's much more expensive to raise a child in China than it is in the United States. That's according to a new research from Beijing-based Yuwa Population Research Institute. So why is it so expensive in China? One reason is working hours in China are often much longer than that in the U.S., and that means more babysitting. I followed the call of our country to give birth to a second child. I actually regret this decision. The biggest problem is that no one can help us with our children. Only super-rich families might have the aspiration to have a third child because they have more money to raise children, like to hire other people to take care of them. Well-off families typically hire a nursemaid to look after the mother and the baby for the first month. It costs over $2,000. Another big expense is education. Those not eligible for public schools because they lack a residency permit must attend private schools. It costs up to $40,000 per year. I think it would be good if kindergartens and elementary schools were free of charge. That's about right. If the nine-year compulsory education were free of charge. And we think the quality of education for our children might be an even bigger issue for having a second or third child. Competition is so fierce in China that parents enroll their kids in extracurricular tutoring classes. An average family in one of Shanghai's upscale neighborhoods spends over $80,000 on education for their kids up to the age of 15. The high cost of having kids in China is leaving many couples hesitant about having more children. In 2021, official Chinese data showed that the country's birth rate fell to the lowest it's been in the past 72 years. If you have a large segment of the population that's working age today but not being replaced tomorrow, you're going to end up with a lot of old people out of work, right, retired, collecting pensions, collecting Social Security, but no working tax base to support that. So that's, you know, that's basically a huge debt problem looming on the horizon. That's a huge, um, your economy will not work as, as well. You know, you won't have as many workers producing. Official Chinese data says that China's fertility rate is around 1.3, but it needs to be at 2.1 for positive population growth. So China's population could be shrinking. By the end of the century, if you're going to see a China that's potentially completely different economy, it's a completely different market, and that's nowhere near as par powerful of a country as it is today. But can Beijing reverse course and solve its aging population problem? The Chinese Communist Party, they could just order young women to get married and have children. But the other problem is 
that there simply aren't enough young women because of the problem of sex-selective abortion and female infanticide under the one-child policy. So the population decline in China is, we might say, baked into the cake. It's a foredone conclusion. Mosher says because of a gender imbalance, an aging Chinese population will happen regardless of what the Chinese Communist Party does. Don Ma, NTD News. After the break, Facebook parent Meta laying out plans to build its metaverse. We have details on how it's using artificial intelligence to improve its virtual world. That and more coming up in just a moment. Here's a Metaverse update. Mark Zuckerberg's Meta mapped out, mapped out key steps to building the Metaverse today. The company hopes to use artificial intelligence to let people generate virtual worlds by describing them verbally. It also plans to use AI technology to improve the conversational ability of voice assistants and to translate between languages. Meta's vice president for AI, Jerome Passanti, said the tech isn't far away. We are creating tools today to help people generate new worlds, and these tools will be uh, AI-assisted. So that technology, you can see, you know, come into products in the coming years. You know, this is not like far off completely uh, of technology. You may remember Meta recently lost a third of its market value after a dismal earnings report. Zuckerberg is investing heavily in the metaverse, a futuristic idea of virtual environments. The Meta CEO is betting it will be the successor to the mobile internet. And Citigroup is getting rid of overdraft fees, making it the largest U.S. bank to eliminate the charges. The fees, including those charged for insufficient funds and overdraft protection, have been hammered by consumer advocates who say they unfairly punish those who can least afford it. City joins a growing list of lenders changing the and or eliminating the charges. At the same time, there's pressure from Congress and increased competition from online banks. City says the fees will be dropped by the summer. And there is a dock house that was struck by a meteorite fragment. It has been sold for $44,000. Christie's auction says the flying object landed in Costa Rica in April 2019. It narrowly missed a German shepherd was living in the doghouse. The item sold for much less than the 300000 it was expected to fetch. The meteorite that hit the doghouse was also included in the auction. It's all, it sold for $21,000. Objects hit by meteorites are extremely rare. Christie says it's only aware of a handful in private hands. And that's the latest business updates for today. You can catch Entity Evening News with Stephanie Cox at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. This is Evelyn Lee sitting in for Paul Graney. Thanks for watching and we'll see you tomorrow.